0: I've been gone for the last two Sundays, and what I was actually doing for the last two Sundays is visiting some of our campuses in Australia. So we have several campuses. One of them is in Melbourne, and one of them is in Sydney, and I had the joy and privilege of meeting with them, kind of hearing where they're at, Uh, a couple of our, um, uh, I guess both, both of our communities are also in midst of transition, and so um, we had a lot of really honest conversations with what God is doing. Um, in this season and they have a lot of different decisions that they need to make in the next few weeks, which is why, um, it was important kind of for us to have these honest conversations, a little bit more detail is going to be given at the town hall meeting, but, um, it was really amazing to be there and to see the kind of fruit, um, from all the things that were sown, especially by our church plant teams. I don't know if you guys remember, but in our midst, we have a bunch of people who we sent out and we blessed to go to Sydney and go to Melbourne and plant a church there. And we're seeing some amazing, amazing, amazing people in our community. And it is not anything that we did. We don't have any magic formula. We don't have any you know, abracadabra kind of, you know, strategy. It is simply the spirit of God breathing on these ministries and breathing on these communities and God doing the work that only he can do. And so it was such a joy to see them this past week. One of the things that I did get asked a lot was like, what the heck is going on in Seoul?" Right. And I had a lot of explaining to do I had a lot of catching up, you know, for people to do. And it's hard to explain if you're not here. Um, I kind of, or like summarized it as it's been a really hard season for a lot of our communities in Seoul. It's a lot of very deep changes that were overdue. And in the midst of it, we have people who still come out who are still fighting and contending for uh, this community. Um, One of the things that I did say is like in the midst of all the kind of messiness and all the different transitions, it feels like there is one really precious, I guess, fruit that is coming from this kind of season, from a season of transition, sometimes brokenness, sometimes in uncertainty, sometimes testing, whether it be corporate or individual. Um, And what I'm seeing God doing is bringing us to the point where only God can intervene. Like only God can fix this mess, you know? And it is a kind of funny. I'm not just trying to be like optimistic. Like, let's look at the silver lining here. It's actually like very accurate what God is doing. In the midst of so many things being shaken, in the midst of it, personally, I'm seeing so many people get to the point of like, man, maybe we do need to pray. Maybe we do need to seek the Lord. Maybe we didn't have all this thing together and our strategies and all our plans kind of fell through. But, man, if this is truly God's house, he's going to take care of it. If this is truly his people, he will provide. And it brings us to the point of, like, do we believe what we've been saying all along? Right? I don't know if if that's where you guys are at, but that's where I'm definitely at. Yes, I pray for the house. Yes, I pray for our communities. Yes, I pray for individuals. But this season has really tested me. Like, this season has been, like, me crying out in the place of prayer. God, you need to intervene. God, you need to move afresh. God, we don't have the answers. And no matter what we do, there's going to be people who are mad. And we're okay with that. But as long as we have you, and as long as your spirit is moving afresh in our communities, what more can we ask for? And so it's a very interesting season where, yes, it's harder than before and it's not as convenient as before and it's not as comfortable and we can't really coast like we did before. But, man, we are given a golden opportunity to seek the Lord afresh, to let go of all our crutches, to let go of all the different ways in which we kind of propped ourselves up and get to that point where we are cornered into saying, God, we need you. God, we need you. We have no choice. We have no way out. And this can sound a little bit dramatic, you know, if you guys haven't really walked with us the last few months. But there's been a lot of different things that this community in particular has gone through. And as I was meditating on the book of Mark, we've been doing, you know, a series on Mark. And we did, was it a seven-part series on Mark? All the way from the very beginning, all the way to the very end. And we kind of ended last week. I want to do kind of like an epilogue if that 's okay from mark i just i can 't seem to move on from the Book of Mark right now, even um, a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching in Melbourne, I, I preached from the book of mark as well it 's almost like you 're about, about to pass on and you 're like you do a double take Like, okay there 's something here there 's something that we uh, that we need to kind of dig our teeth into like here, um, and so Mark chapter ten. Talking about blind, blind Bartimaeus is one of those one of those passages where I'm like, God has something more to tell us from the book of Mark. Um, so today's message is called, I want to see. I want to see. If you have your Bibles with you, I really encourage you to open up your Bibles because we're going to be glossing over. I don't have slides for you today, and so it's going to be helpful for you to have the text in front of you. We're going to quickly read through it one more time. So Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. We typically read from the ESV, but today uh, I'll be reading from the NIV 84. So if you have your phones on you, maybe you can switch over to NIV. So this is Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52, and it reads, Then they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Amen. So I'm going to do something very simple today. I'm simply going to talk about a little bit about the context. I'm going to talk a little bit about the irony of the situation. And in the end, we're going to talk about an exhortation that we get from this text. So if we were to start with a context, if you guys remember a couple, not a couple, three Sundays back, Pastor David Howe was talking about the turning point in the book of Mark, where we were building up to this point, And then all of a sudden we see Jesus shifting gears. And now it's almost like, His eyes are set on the cross at this point. So he was doing healings, miracles, preaching on the kingdom of heaven, calling his disciples, doing all these different things. And we get to this point where it's almost like he turns his face to look at Jerusalem and then there's no turning back at that point. He begins to talk about the son of man that must suffer, that must die in order for him to be resurrected. It's almost like all the excitement and all the inertia and all the momentum that we had gained until that point where people are coming in droves and they're like, this is the man, like this is the guy to follow right now. If it was a social media, you know, era, everybody would be following, trending and like retweeting, like this would be what would be happening. And then he changes. It's almost like he shifts gears into a different kind of message. And it's almost like he's saying, like, you think you understand greatness But let me tell you what true greatness is all about. Let me tell you what kind of king I am. It's not the kind of, I'm not the kind of savior you think I am. And he begins to talk about the suffering, the laying down of his life, the death that is ahead for him. It's like he's going straight for the cross at that point. Now, before the the passage that we just read, if you look at your Bible, right, right before that is this like almost like mini scene where we see his disciples after hearing about his suffering that must come instead of saying like, Hey, let's hear a little bit more about it. Or I want to understand more. You see them jockeying for a high position. You see them like, yeah, 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 yeah. Crucifixion, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Death. Okay. Okay. Whatever. Now this is what I want to ask you. Can I have, can I be second in command when your kingdom comes? Like, can I get to be like VP? Can I be the dude right under you? Can I be the guy on your right? Can I be the guy on your left? And it's almost like they didn't hear everything he just said, right? He's saying, I came here to suffer and die and in this way to serve. And they're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you can do that. But, but regarding me, I don't want to have to do that. I don't want any of this dying to myself. I don't want any of this, like putting down you know, my desires and my interests. Like I, I want to be number two in your kingdom and Jesus so gracious and so merciful instead of striking them dead as he should have in that moment, this is what he says, you know, with great compassion, he asks them. So what do you want me to do for you? And, you know, they say, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. To which Jesus says, look, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You seem here still trying to redefine this idea of what greatness means, of what power means. It's almost like we, we are so ingrained with this idea of what success should look like. Like if God is on my side, this is what my life should look like. Like it should not look like brokenness. It should not look like desperation. It should not look like me on my knees crying out for mercy. Everything in us feels like okay that's a low of lows i never want to be here i never want to publicly be seen here like i want people to see me at my best this is what my social media stream is all about this is what my sunday persona is all about like i am great i'm doing great bless you brother bless you sister you know like we like to present ourselves in this way we hate to show the side that is vulnerable to people we hate to show that you know we i need god you know like i actually need god it's not that i can get along with him or yeah, I see him once in a while. It's like, like I am broken beyond repair. I need healing that it can only come from Jesus. We hate to see ourselves in those shoes. We hate to put ourselves in those shoes. And it's so funny that right before the story about blind Bartimaeus, that's what you see. You see still this like craving for power, this craving for This is what I want my life to look like. This is what I know success looks like. And Jesus keeps deconstructing this idea of what the greatest in the kingdom of heaven looks like. This is what the entire book of Mark is about. It's about, I'm doing all these different things, but ultimately I'm going to be a savior who dies on a cross. Naked, bleeding, vulnerable, broken, abandoned. This is your savior. Now, who do you say that I am? That's what the entire book of Mark is all about. And so we see that right after he's talking about, man, I'm going to die. And they think, I guess they must have been thinking that's like figurative or something. He's like, no, I'm I'm actually going to die. And they're like, Okay, but answer this question. Do I get to be on your right and on your. You know what I mean? Like, it obviously hasn't sunk in just yet. And then we have the story of how Jesus interacts with blind Bartimaeus. And then, right after that, if you're looking at your Bible, we launch into chapter 11 when he goes into the city of Jerusalem. So he's already well on his way to the cross. And we see this little sandwiched little story in between these things. So, this is the context. It's in the context on the way from Jericho to the cross, this little story happens. Now, this is the irony that I want to propose to you about this little story. is that it seems like the blind man is the only one who's truly seeing. And it seems that everybody else who seems to have sight is actually very spiritually blind. We see what is happening here. If, if you could kind of close your eyes and just imagine with me, imagine line number two in the, in the subway station or line number nine in the subway station during rush hour. Okay. So it's like you're plastered up against someone's back. Like you have no breathing space. People are pressing up against you in the midst of that. Can you imagine Jesus walking through and you, instead of being able to follow where Jesus is going, you are the blind guy in this scenario. You hear a commotion You hear shouts and and talking and, you know, it's all out in the open. And so it seems like something important is happening. And you hear all this bustle all around you and you're still blind. You have no idea what's happening. And then finally somebody tells you, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. He's in your midst. And everything you've heard about this guy, everything that you've heard that he does, everything that you know is within his power kind of comes up in your mind. And then all of a sudden, this cry comes from within you. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's like he knows that he has this one shot to gain the attention of the son of man. Like he has this one shot. He cannot stand up and go to him. He cannot be carried there. He can barely even be heard about the commotion. And everything in in him is like, I cannot miss this opportunity. This is my life at stake. Whether I can see for the rest of my life or not is at stake at this moment. And so you see him and his need and his desperation and his blindness crying out for Jesus. In the midst of this, people are trying to quiet him down. They're saying, look, you're embarrassing us. You're embarrassing Jesus. He's got more important things to do. I think you should keep it down. I think you need to calm down. I, need, I think you are kind of going above him. Yet. Like right now, you just need to shut up and be quiet and be still and just let him pass. I don't know what exactly they were saying, but they were trying to quiet this guy. And the more resistance he got, the more desperate he got. Like, you can tell me to shut up tomorrow. That's fine. But Jesus is here right now. This is my chance. This is my once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me to get the healing that I've been praying for, that I've been crying out for my entire life. And so it doesn't matter what kind of resistance comes this way. He's like, I cannot miss out on this. I don't care what you say to me. I don't care how inappropriate it is right now. I don't care how much of a commotion I'm making. I don't care that I'm making a scene here. All I care about is that Jesus is here and my healing is at hand and I cannot miss out on this. This is the desperation. This is the picture of someone who's desperate. This isn't somebody who's like, I would like some healing too. Let me take a number and hopefully he'll get to me. No, he's like, no, I cannot even wait. I am going to yell and scream and beg and plead until he turns to me and until I get my healing. This is the picture of desperation. Now, the ironic thing is that this person who is blind is actually the person who sees his true need of Jesus. Jesus is mo- walking among all these different people who, yeah, they might be there for the healing, they might be there for the teaching, but if they knew who was walking in their midst, I feel like they wouldn't be as polite, perhaps. Sometimes in our own understanding of what's appropriate and what's courteous and what's, you know, nice towards Jesus, we have no grid for desperation. We have no grid for this like out of line crying out for him. It's like it's too undignified for us. It's too beneath us to get to that point. I want my seeking the Lord to look a certain way. I want my crying out to be done in private. I want still to keep composure and dignity in public. And I never want to see somebody see me in the state of blind Bartimaeus. And so often we kind of push away from ever needing to be this desperate. We don't want to be seen as needy. We don't want to be seen as broken beyond repair. But the ironic thing is that That's where, honestly, that's where we all are. Sometimes we don't see it because of all our different props. We don't see it because of our self-sufficiency. We don't see it because of our arrogance and our self-reliance. Like, hey, Jesus, look, I got it. I got it. You know, I'll worship you on Sunday. I'll read your word once in a while. I'll pray right before eating. And other than that, we're good. Like, you don't really need to intervene in my situation. You don't really need to intervene in my family. You don't really need to intervene in my workplace. You don't really need to intervene in what I'm going through personally right now. We want to keep Jesus at a distance, and and we want to keep our relationship with him very professional, but never want to see ourselves in that place of brokenness and need. But this is truly where we are. We are lost. We are lost without Jesus. We are lost. We're blinder than blind Bartimaeus without Jesus. We are more desperately in need for healing than we understand. And so often we try to mask our brokenness. We don't want to broadcast the fact that we need Jesus. And then there's this guy in the middle of the street, almost swallowed up by the crowd, crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's touching on something that all of us have to learn from. He's touching on It's way beyond what is appropriate. It is something that almost like, it's almost like from the gut, like from within, like his cry isn't well put together. It's like, you need to have mercy on me. You cannot pass me by. I'm right here and I'm going to scream as long as I have to until you come to me. Until I get my healing. Now, many of us believe this myth of a self-made man, kind of like a Christian-flavored American dream, right? Like our Christian life looked like this. And I got saved, and then everything changes, and then I got deeper, and then I get more holy, and then I see the Lord. And it's like a trajectory that kind of flows very smoothly, and then if there's any dips along the way, if there's any detours along the way, like something's wrong, and I need to hide this at all costs. Like nobody can know that I'm having a hard time. Nobody can know that I'm broken right now. Nobody can know what my situation at home is like. And we have this, like we're feeding into this image, this false image of what a true Christian looks like. A true Christian also looks broken. A true Christian also looks desperate. A true Christian doesn't have everything together. That's the point of Jesus. That's the point of Jesus. We don't have to keep it all together because we have a savior. We don't have to keep it all together because we have one who is righteous, holy, just, loving, compassionate, kind, forgiving. If you don't sin, you don't need a forgiver. Right? So This is why we need a forgiver. And so we need to, as we are reading through the Gospels, we need to break away from this understanding of what a Christian looks like, what a follower of Christ looks like. If you read through the book of mark it's full of broken betraying needy people who are simply crying out for one person and that is jesus there's only one hero in the story it's not you it's not me it is jesus now let me ask this question whether it be recent or further back have you ever been in a situation where you've been cornered into that place of desperation It can be something where you feel like things are completely out of your control. Like there's nothing I do right now is going to fix this. Like, have you ever been in that situation where you just have to cry out to God? You don't even know what to say. You don't even know how to pray. But everything in you knows that the answer is found in this one man. And he needs to answer my prayer. He needs to hear me right now. In times like that, you don't get this elaborate like, Father who is gracious and merciful. No, you don't get these elaborate, articulate prayers. You're like, help, help. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to package this. Well, I just know that I need you to intervene right now. In situations like that, there is no flowery, you know, like let me work through this theology and let me persuade you to help me. No, you're crying out in desperation because you need him to move. Have you ever been backed up to a wall where you know that if Jesus doesn't intervene, you have no way out. You have no way out. He is the only answer. I don't know if this was, this is what you're going through right now, or I don't know if this is something that you went through recently or years back, but isn't this almost like a, a gift? Isn't this... The ability to come to a place where you actually see things rightly for first time. Isn't it a gift? In the midst of brokenness, in the midst of not having the answers, that's the point. You don't have the answers. Things are not in your control. And so in the midst of these seasons that seem to shake us and disorient us, perhaps we're seeing things truly for what they are for first time. Perhaps we were blinder before these trials came into play. Before the season where everything was shaken, I thought I had everything together. I thought I was coasting. And as long as I do my part, things will pan out for me. But that's not the way that life works, and that's not the way that God works. God, in his mercy and in his grace, will take us through whatever he needs to take us through to get us to the point where we develop in us a cry Of Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. doesn't matter if you look like you have everything put together on the outside. God's going to find a way to lead you to the place where you need him, where you finally see that you need him. That you're nothing, you can go nowhere without Jesus. It is such a gift to be able to see that. And sometimes we try to make sense of all the pain and we try to make a sense of all the brokenness and all the things that just we cannot make sense of. But if there's one thing that I know for sure is happening within you, is God is forging in you a cry of desperation. He's going to get you to that point where you realize that you need him, that you have no answers outside from him. Because there's nothing more dangerous than believing you can manage without God. There's nothing more dangerous than believing you can see when you're actually blind. There's nothing more dangerous to think that, hey, I got this. You worry about other broken people, but I I got this. There's nothing more dangerous than believing that you are not needing of his help. That was the whole point of the whole passage that we read about the Pharisees uh, criticizing Jesus when he was sitting among sinners. He was telling them, look. I'm a physician and I'm here for the sick. It makes sense that I would sit here with the sinners. But what he said at the same time was, it's not because you're healthy that I'm not sitting with you. It's that you're not willing to sit with me. You should be sitting with me too. You're broken too. You're sick too. You have need for a physician too. You're just missing out on me sitting with a sinner. If you get to the point where you can acknowledge that you need me, You need to sit with me at the table. If you can get to that point, you'll fully be seeing again. So this is the exhortation that I feel in God speaking and trumpeting through this passage in particular. You know, when, when I was in Australia, I was being asked by people, what is happening at New Philly? You know, what's, where are we going? Where, where's this direction headed? And I had to be very honest. I had to be very honest and say, look, as a ministry, we've exploded in the last few years. We've done things we never thought we would do. We built things we never thought we would build. We've reached so many people, not just within our campuses, but through you know, YouTube and like, through videos and through stream. And we've done so much we never thought we would get to do. But there came a point where all this glamour, all this influence, all this platform, it got to our heads. And we started to believe that we don't need God. This is how I know this. When you know you need God, you will pray. Like, it's like you have to put a gun to someone's head to keep them from praying. When you know that you need God, you pray, that's the most natural thing to, even if you don't know how to. Nobody's, as nobody has said, okay, you start out by addressing him and then you end with in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Even if nobody has sat you down and told you that, if you in your heart know that you need Jesus, you, you won't be able to be kept quiet. Even if somebody tried to shush you, even if somebody tried to silence you, everything in you would want to cry out for Jesus. When we see the prayer movement waning, that's the first red flag that we've gotten to the point where. Look, we have things under control. We're like, yeah, we need you to answer this thing and that thing, and these are all inconveniences. But deep down inside, we've lost that desperation in the place of prayer. We've lost that understanding like, this is make or break. This is life or death right now. And you need to move, God, because we don't have the answers. I feel like as a church, we got to a point where, like, actually, we do have the answers. And we have things going. And we have machinery going, and we have the numbers rolling in, and we have finances, and we have buildings, and we have all these new initiatives, and all these church plants, and look at us, we're doing really great right now. And somewhere along the way, we lost that desperation. Now, we've been crying out to God to bring us back to that place. We've, especially within the last year, we've realized our brokenness. We've realized, man, I don't know when it happened, but we left God somewhere behind And we moved on with our programs. We moved on with our strategies and our blueprints and all these initiatives. And we left God behind somewhere along the way. And we've been crying out for God to move in our midst once again. For him to do whatever he needs to do. Break us if you need to break us. Prune us if you need to prune us. Just get us to the place where we welcome your work. We welcome your Holy Spirit. We welcome your intervention once again. Make this your house, once again. That's where we're at as a church. I wish, you know, especially for all the newcomers here, I wish I could say, like, man, exciting things are happening, and, man, this is a church to be at. I wish that were the case, but that's not where we are right now. Where we are right now, for sure, is we're in a desperate place. We're in a desperate place where we're crying out for God to move. And whatever it takes, wherever it is that he leads us, we're saying we'll follow. If it means we lose people, we're going to lose people it means we have to give up buildings, we have to give up buildings. If it means that we have to close down certain campuses, we'll do that. Just bring us to that place where we need you once again. I'm going to close with this and we're going to have a little bit more of an extended time maybe to pray or to worship. In the book of Revelation, if you have the Bible with you, could you turn to Revelation chapter 3? It's the last book of the Bible. I don't know what that was. (gasps) Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 14 to the end of the chapter. This is... A letter, in your Bible should show up in red, right? It means that it's coming from the mouth of Jesus, right? Is a letter written to a church in Laodicea. And it says, The angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, not cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm neither hot nor cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, this is the point. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. I feel like this is what God is speaking to our church right now. It could be wrong, but this is what I feel like God is saying right now. He's saying you've gotten to the point where you feel like you have it all together. I wish you could see where you're actually at. You're very much in need of me. You are, through all the programs and through all the social media exposure, whatever, you've forgotten that you are wretched, you're blind, you're poor, you're naked. And you need to come to me for what you need. And I hear him inviting us Saying, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This is a verse that is often taken out of context. This is a verse that we often say, this is for the unbeliever. Like, hey, Jesus is knocking at your door and you need to open up and let him in. No, this is actually a verse that was intended for the believer. It's intended for the church. A church that somehow had found a way to shut him out found a way to keep the machinery running without him even being in the room. I found a way to keep things moving forward and Jesus is outside the door asking to be let in. And the invitation is, let me in and I will dine with you. Let me in and I will sit with you. Let me in and I will be with you. That is the invitation that is bringing us to. I would love to see Jesus moving powerfully Once again, in this church, I think he already is, but I know that there's more. I know that there's so much more that God wants to pour out. If you knew that Jesus was in this room, if you knew that he was here in our midst, in this room, things would be very different. Our demeanor would be very different. Our prayer lives would be very different. Our worship would sound very different. And so this is the invitation that I feel God giving us. I'm not done with this church. You're getting to the point where you realize, man, you got to cry out once again. You got to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We're getting to the point where we are repenting for our arrogance, for our self-sufficiency, for the way that we look down on other people or other churches or somehow put ourselves on a pedestal we're needing to repent of that and once again we're needing to open up the door for jesus to move in our midst so god is rebuking and he's disciplining out of love but he's also knocking on our door he's asking us to get to that place where we are desperate and we begin to cry out to him once again